from the Calyx Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, animal sex, cooling oceans, and radiating fish. And joining us for a special roundtable discussion are Mason Porter to talk about dynamical systems and Travis Heim on condensed matter. Also, you can find out what the Laplace transform is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up, here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty awesome, actually. You know, is there a week when you're not doing awesome? You're just the awesome guy. What? This is phenomenal. I mean, <laughs> Steve Jobs just introduces a new stuff this week, right? Of course, I'm always in a state of shock when that happens, right? <laughs> it's kind of like a week-long orgasm. I know. So, uh, in fact, just thinking about it, it's giving me one right now. <laughs> But thank God for Macworld. <laughs> so I'm curious, does the Macworld have anything to do with an animal fact of the week? No, but it has to do with sex. Uh, so here's the animal fact. <laughs> Apparently the early bird might get the worm, but the last in line makes the baby. So it's either a choice between eating or sex. Not exactly. It's about being the last guy with the girl. <laughs> so it's been observed from chimpanzees to fruit flies that the last person the female mates with is the one that is most successful at impregnating her. No one's really known why, but one of the new theories is that as vagina, the female sexual organ is actually a very hostile place. Mm-hmm. And by having other males condition it first, <laughs> uh, the last guy there would have better chance with his sperm. Oh, okay. It's one of the uh, theories coming up for why the last guy could be the lucky one. I've also heard that certain types of apes, right, uh, they'll mate with numerous uh, males. Right. Just because that way she, none of the males actually know which of them is their father, so they'll all try and take care of the baby. Okay. Yeah. Although I don't think that seems to work in humans uh, based on Jerry Springer episodes. but <laughs> I don't have any desire to take care of other people's kids. It's <laughs> oh. the beauty of the uh, ape system. You just don't know. <laughs> We're all a family, right? Yeah. This was interesting work carried out by David Hoskin at the University of Exeter in the UK. Very nice. All right, you know, again, I can't let you have all the fun with the animal facts of the week, so I'm going to talk about radiating fish. You mean they emit radiation? Uh, That's what some researchers are suggesting that they do, is that if certain types of fish are irradiated by radioactive materials, Uh they can actually transfer that radioactivity to neighboring fish. Not only should I be afraid of looking at fish, I should be afraid of them looking at me, huh? Especially with their x-ray eyes. (laughs) So, secondhand radiation, who would have thought you had to be fearful of that? Yeah, that's pretty scary, man. (laughs) So this has actually been shown previously in cell cultures that low doses of ionized radiation have bystander effects uh-huh. and cause damage in nearby unexposed tissue. Uh-huh. But there hasn't been much evidence of this in live animals until a recent study that was carried out by biologists uh, Colin Seymour and Carmel 
mother sill of McMaster University in Canada, exposed a bunch of fish to these low doses of x-rays, and then put those exposed fish in a tank with unexposed fishes, uh-huh. and they saw in the unexposed animals similar types of tissue damage as to the exposed animals. Wow. Suggesting that somehow the damaging effects of this radiation being passed on, either through a radiative effect or maybe some chemicals might be produced in the fish that are then transferred. That's like a disease, huh? And you thought secondhand smoke was bad. (laughs) I'm not really sure if that's an animal fact, because, you know, it's not like these fish are radiating uh, normally. Right. (laughs) Did they glow? (laughs) Anyway, this was published in a recent edition, uh, Environmental Science and Technology. So, Charles, have you ever suffered from hypoxia? It's like one of the basic bodily functions I forget to do, right? <laughs> Eating, sleeping, breathing. So it turns out that's a problem in the Gulf of Mexico. There's an area known as the dead zone right off the Mississippi River. And every year, an area about the size of 15,000 square kilometers is more or less dead, about the size of Connecticut, essentially. And it's been growing each year. Hmm. The problem is that nutrient runoffs from farm and industry coming out of Mississippi is causing a phytoplankton to bloom. As they die off, bacteria eat it up, and it also consumes all the oxygen in the water. Right. So water should ideally have 5 ppm of oxygen. When the bacteria consume it, it's down to 2 ppm, and at that point, a lot of life dies. For example, uh, undersea creatures like crabs and hmm. uh, especially the stuff near the bottom of the ocean. Right. And so between late spring and early fall, there's this area that's just completely dead. And scientists have been concerned about how to control it. So there's a task force being set up to look at how we could prevent this from happening or at least mitigate it as much as possible. Well, I guess the first thing would be just stop polluting the area. (laughs) A huge task that will take many years to uh, address, but the government's finally getting around to it. Oh, yeah, the the government. They'll they'll be speedy on it. (laughs) Excuse the sarcasm. It's not intended the New Year. I'm supposed to be optimistic in the New Year. (laughs) I want George Bush to uh, do something right once in a while. (laughs) Just for novelty's sake, right? (laughs) I guess good news for the Gulf of Mexico, and there's a nice article in Chemical and Engineering News. To complement that story, I'll talk about the cooling oceans. I thought our planet was is having a fever. It's been shown that a lot of the world's oceans have been warming for the past 50 years. Yes. Due largely, I guess, to global um, warming type effects. But there's recently been a lot of work done using the Argo autonomous profiling floats mm-hmm. to actually get better measurements of temperatures of the ocean. Okay. And uh, local, I guess, differences in the temperature. Right. And uh, what a group led by Lyman and others have done is to look at the data from these floats And they've shown that actually there's a lot of cooling going on in sort of non-isotropic manner, but Uh in patches around, which extends to about 750 meters deep. It's not thought that all the heat that had been observed previously had been transferred Uh to deeper oceans. Uh So it is thought that this cooling effect is large and widespread. Okay. But it does have implications because even though the oceans might be cooling in some spots, you would expect that the volume should contract a little bit. Right. But in fact, it hasn't been, suggesting that glaciers melting and such is perhaps more than enough to compensate for any type of cooling effect going on. Okay. Additional data on the state of our oceans and what's going on with the temperature. Which kind of complicates things. (laughs) If things were easy, I guess environmental scientists would be out of a job. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so very fascinating work published in a recent edition of Geophysical Research Letters. And that's all for our look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. 
In a few moments, Mason Porter and Travis Jaime joins us to talk about dynamical systems and condensed matter. So stay right there. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, today we're having a roundtable discussion on random musings in math and science. And joining us today are two very special guests, uh, soon-to-be professor Mason Porter at uh, Oxford University and Travis Heim, research uh, fellow here at the University of California at Berkeley in physics. Uh, welcome to the show, guys. Yeah. Thank Thanks. you. Yeah, I know you were expecting somebody with a British accent, weren't you? Sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> you, you sound like you're from L.A., man. I am from L.A. <laughs> from the hood. <laughs> um, I'm going to bring the hood with me there. <laughs> oh, so they're not going to civilize you. Oh, no. No. <laughs> I'll, I'll compromise with fish and chips, but that's about it. Okay. You've been here in uh, Berkeley for the past week for a very interesting conference. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So this is a conference on dynamical systems with an emphasis on spatially extended systems. Well, at least it's supposed to have that emphasis. It actually concentrated on non-spatially extended systems, but that's another story. So this is part of the um, MSRI program for this (coughs) semester, or one of the MSRI programs, which is on dynamical systems. And so this was the introductory workshop of um, of the semester program. So dynamical systems, is that something that uh, you see as applied to real-world situations or more in an abstract sense? So I like to apply it to real-world situations. The conference actually had a mixture of people who were proving theorems about it and people who are applying it to various contexts. Um, so yesterday there was a lot of mathematical biology, for instance, applications to neuroscience, um, but there also it was also, dis- also discussed for applications to um, celestial mechanics, and um, I briefly, well, in my five-minute talk, discussed applications to optics. But there's, it, it, there, are, there are a lot of applications in the, in the conference. It's just a mixture of, of people working on both the pure and applied side. In terms of like recent developments in this field, what are some of the interesting things you see? Okay, so this is, it's one of those really broad fields, just like, well, Okay, so there's lots of people working in all these fields, and so they're all really broad at some at some level. Um, the most interesting, see, I'm biased towards the ones that I do, so I don't know if there's any one most interesting. But um, dynamical systems, in general, is a subfield of mathematics where you talk about um, you try you try to look at ordinary differential equations, partial differential equations, difference equations from a sort of qualitative point of view. So. Th- so geometry will come into play. So you don't necessarily write down a closed-form answer, but you try to get qualitative behavior of solution. And because a lot of things are modeled um, by those sorts of math- mathematical structures, you can apply it all over the place. But you know, this this isn't it isn't rocket science. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's harder than rocket science in some sense, but it's not literally rocket science. So not that I'm biased. So just like just to give an example, I mean, what kind of uh, specific problems would you know your field be able to solve once it gets uh, to that level? 
Okay, so that kind of depends. So you kind so I try to solve just small pieces at once, like when I'm doing things. Um, so what people are doing in celestial mechanics, for instance, although the people who spoke about that at this conference are doing other things, people are using some of the concepts to design, um, say itineraries for space missions that use less energy. Mm -hmm. And so you can use some of the extra structure in the equations using, say, more complicated ways than if you were not doing that. Or um, people are also using what are known as coherent structures. And this last one was was talked about at the conference to try to, to see how um, like fluid might behave you know, near, near a coast or maybe eventually get to the point of trying to understand um, like predicting weather. There, there was there were some talks on weather prediction. So one of the things that I that I found out is that um, apparently the the guy in the government who knows all the code is retiring soon. You know there'll be a loss of legacy code to figure out. But th these people are trying to just trying to find nice initial conditions so that so that maybe like what's a what's a good three day forecast now. You know if you change how you look at the initial conditions, maybe that would be a, a five four, a five day forecast in some amount of years would be as good as a three-day forecast now or some, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So in your field, it looks like there is a lot of modeling going on. And, there is. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it's trying to forecast the future behavior of the system. You know, what are some of the challenges to uh, getting a better picture of the future? Is it, do we need more computing power? Is it more uh, better... Um, insight into the the processes to begin with or uh, what do we what do we need well i'd say better insights it's the most important one because although certainly a lot more a lot more problems can be tackled with better computing power at some point you you get beyond the point of just throw a harder computer at it you know hit it with a bigger hammer you know you do have to have intelligent algorithms to do things especially if you're doing say like a full three-dimensional simulation of a large model it's like okay you write down the model from the physics but then if you just do brute force you can only get so far so you really have to design algorithms intelligently you know there are going to have to be shortcuts to really make predictions so you want to try to find shortcuts that make a, one one thing that i think it was einstein who said this make everything as simple as possible but not simpler mm -hmm. and so you know, there, there's always um there's always a search for more insights. It's not just a matter of throwing better computers at it, mm -hmm. though that helps. These types of developments probably require more I guess, discussions or more brain power rather than just having raw you know, computing well, power. It requires both. Okay. Um, because there are some times where you want to use computing power as well. Now, I, I don't want to denigrate the computing power. It's just that at some point you, you start getting a saturation if you're only going to throw better computers at it and not mm -hmm. also try to design better algorithms or find shortcuts that are not too horrible. Um, so the, I guess the point of this conference is that so there were a lot of both pure and applied mathematicians, and a lot of us um, already knew each other on the applied side, and we knew some of the pure ones, but you don't always get, you don't always get as many pure mathematicians and applied mathematicians in this field talking to each other and kind of the point of this conference was to discuss okay well the pure mathematicians are developing certain technologies mathematically the applied mathematicians are using some of those technologies to try to solve certain types of problems and and as kind of we've been indicating in this discussion there are, there are a variety of, of types of problems that people can use them on you know name name your field of science and there's probably at least some way you can try to do it mm -hmm. and so you know with, with more discussion that you know maybe some people have come up with some idea maybe the applied people can adapt the pure ones right. maybe there'll be some more pure math problems that are motivated by some new applications that they just didn't think of before. And so that's kind of what we spent the week doing. Okay, very cool. Uh, so Travis, tell us, what exactly is uh, condensed matter physics? Well, it's the study basically of, of systems that are, are condensed into a, a solid or a liquid phase. So it's, it ends up being, uh, in some sense, low temperature physics compare, as opposed to, say, high energy physics, which will study... Uh, say, individual particles at, at high energy. Condensed matter physics looks at large systems with a lot of particles at relatively low temperature. And it's a lot more testable than high energy physics, isn't it? 
This is true. You can do a lot of tabletop science in condensed matter physics. So basically, you're looking at, say, how, uh, for example, ice forms and then how it behaves as a crystalline structure. Is that right? Yeah. You know, some of the applications in your field include like semiconductors, superconductors, and you know all sorts of exotic materials. Um, is there a particular um, you know development that you're working on? What I'm working on is uh, quantum computing in the solid state. So there are a number of different approaches people are taking to quantum computing, but uh, but the advantage of doing it in the solid state is that you can use all of the fabrication techniques that have been developed for conventional computers, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and solid state systems tend to be very scalable. So whereas whereas the uh, the the quantum computations in NMR systems are more advanced, where you use uh, you use chemical nuclei as mm-hmm. uh, as your quantum computer. Those aren't very scalable because the, then you have to make more and more complex molecules and do this engineering at a molecular level, which is very difficult. So, like the signal to nose ratio becomes a problem when you get bigger systems, right? Yeah. But in in the solid state, you can you can build it up just like a classical computer once you get mm-hmm. uh, once you get your your individual components worked out. With with these uh, systems, like what kind of uh, material would you be using? Are they like like metal uh, crystals or some sort of uh, inorganic material? In in our case, we use superconducting circuits, and uh, and our circuits we use aluminum. Other people use uh, niobium, which uh, those uh, those are the two superconducting metals that are that are very easy to make into circuits on a chip, and we we've patterned it onto a silicon chip the way that. Uh, the way that uh, semiconductor circuits are done. You know what exactly are you using for your qubits? You know the the um, the, uh, the material that you use to so-called um, hold information. So our qubits are uh, what are called flux qubits, and they make use of the fact that the magnetic flux through a superconducting loop is quantized. Okay. So uh, so you can take uh, two different quanta of flux to be your uh, zero and one states for the qubit, and so we have loops of aluminum and. The loops are broken by uh, Josephson junctions, which are, uh, in our case, aluminum oxide uh, breaks mm-hmm. in the loop, mm-hmm. and these allow us to control the parameters of the loop. But basically, you're looking at uh, flux quanta through a superconducting loop. So, in terms of how large your system can be scaled up to, is it uh, limitless, or is it, you know, are there limits to how many bits you can hold at a time, or you know, process? Well, uh, the the thing that would limit it is is what's called decoherence. Where the the uh, the wave aspects of the quantum state lose their coherence and it turns into more like a collection of particles. Uh, so what we're working on right now is is measuring just how much decoherence we have in uh, in single qubits and in in a pair of qubits coupled together. And so r- right now the coherence times are very short. So we would have to improve that to to get to a scalable system. Well, yeah. So with your qubits, so you have. I guess you have a couple of them working together. I mean, how do you get them to couple better? So uh, we developed a, a device that doubles as a readout device and as, uh, as a switch to, to uh, couple the qubits or decouple them. Uh, so our major experiments last year were, were in testing whether the scheme works. We, we, use, we use what's called a, uh, a DC squid, which is, uh, squid is an acronym for superconducting quantum interference device, mm-hmm. and it's a very sensitive magnetometer. So we we read out the flux states of 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 the of the qubits using the squid, but we can also use this to uh, to basically uh, hide the two qubits from each other, or uh, 
or then couple them together so that they they see the states of, of the opposite qubit and and uh, and interact. So or, originally our qubits were were just labeled A and B to distinguish them, but we wanted to uh, we wanted to encourage them to couple. So we decided. A and B stand for Angelina and Brad, and uh, it worked out pretty well. They coupled together, and uh, we we published these results in Science last month. Okay, excellent. So you didn't want to name them George and Laura, huh? <laughs> no. Yeah, I don't know if that would work out so well. <laughs> Maybe but, George and Condi. Yeah, but <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course, A and B actually have a long tradition in quantum information theory. It usually stands for Alice and Bob. Uh-huh. But um, I, one time years ago, I saw um, I saw a quantum information theory talk, and the person who was speaking decided they were going to use the most unlikely Alice and Bob possible. So they showed a picture of Alice Cooper and Bob Dole. <laughs> um, but I like the whole Angelina and Brad thing better. I mean, you know, coupling in Hollywood, coupling in physics. You know, there's really no difference between the two. <laughs> Well, it, it does certainly seem like um, like it's a potential a breakthrough in, in computing. Are, are there any practical applications with um, you know using qubits? Well, uh, the military thinks so, which is why they're the ones primarily funding the field. Well, you'll uh, need more than two qubits. You do need more <laughs> than two qubits. The uh, the two most useful algorithms that have been found for a quantum computer that that provide a substantial speed up over a classical computer are of uh, uh, Shor's algorithm for uh, factoring large numbers, and then uh, it. Love Grover's algorithm is one, yes. the other one you're referring to. Uh, yeah, his algorithm for uh, searching unstructured databases. So, but there's both a, of those. But there's a big difference in the speed because Grover's algorithm is a squa- is a square root speed up, and and um, Shor's algorithm is um, exponential speed up. Yeah, and. And so, but both those applications are very useful in cryptography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like if, if, for example, if you can, um, the the entire crypto systems that we have are based on the fact that it's hard to factor large numbers. So if you can factor it, you can do all sorts of insidious things that I'm looking forward to participating in. The only trouble is that uh, we're still not at the point where we can factor anything interesting, and so the we can factor 15 now with yeah. So the NMR. <laughs> Uh, the NMR qubits found that they could, they could factor 15, and they showed that 15 is equal to 3 times 5 with a 98% probability. Yeah, how, how, how long had they been in existence when they could do that? Uh, I don't know. It, it took them several years. But right. I so, I mean, I'm pretty sure I could factor 15 by that age, for instance. <laughs> but there's no – I mean, I, I'm not going to be used for crypto systems. Not to be cynical about it or anything. But. Okay, very cool, guys. Um, so, uh, I, I just want to thank you both for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. And we were just talking to Travis Jaime and Mason Porter. They'll be joining us again on a later episode. In a few moments, the Grokatron 5000. So stay right there. Okay, well, it looks like um, Mason Porter and Travis Heim have agreed to join us on this week's Grokatron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. Uh, today's topic Not is... Not Deep Thought. 
Sorry. I, I need more of that, actually. But today's question is, uh, what kind of dynamical system or what kind of, of condensed matter? And here are five subjects. And if they were either dynamical system or condensed matter, what would they be? So subject number one, TV host uh, Oprah Winfrey. What kind um, of system or matter would she Oh, be? well, so Oprah Winfrey would very clearly be um, X prime equals alpha X for large alpha because she keeps blowing up. And that's, you know, this is exponential increase. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, subject number two, um, Star Wars character Yoda. Yoda. Oh, man. What would Yoda be? Or B, what would Yoda? Uh, I can't do that right. Um, now it's my turn. Travis, why don't you go first? Well, Yoda is sort of like, he's been around for a long time, and he has a lot of knowledge, so I would say he'd be like some sort of some sort of very fundamental thing, like like Bloch's theorem that like everybody refers to in Kindness Matter. Yoda would clearly be a um, chaotic attractor, <laughs> because he's extremely stable and yet very complicated. Subject number three. The Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, neither holy nor Roman nor empire. Well, actually, so I have a perfect example for this because this would be kind of like um, Stephen Wolfram's A New Kind of Science, which is neither new nor science. Okay. Or kind. Well, it's kind of science, but it's not <laughs> science. That's not a dynamical system, but he, it's close enough. <laughs> so I would say that, that as, as a condensed matter analog to the Holy Roman Empire, I would give it to something like uh, something like an amorphous solid where it's it's not a, it could be some uh, some big object but it's not entirely ordered at a, at a small scale. Okay, so like a gel or a <laughs> polymer. Yeah, like maybe, yeah, maybe just like a glass. Okay. Like it doesn't quite <laughs> achieve crystalline order. But so there's no lot transition temperature, huh? Yeah. Subject number three, um, theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Well, let's see. What would Stephen Hawking be? Well, I mean, you could take a dynamical system from, from general relativity if you wanted to because, because he's done a lot of um, contributions there. So you could say, you know, I'm going to view any differential equation can be thought of mentally as a dynamical system in some sense. So you could take Einstein's equations or something. Well, Stephen Hawking uh, requires a lot of uh, a lot of semiconductor technology just to uh, <laughs> just to vocalize his thoughts. So I, uh-huh. I would I would naturally associate it with with semiconductor circuits. Okay. <laughs> Very nice. Okay, and lastly, if you could probably imagine uh, subject number five. President of the United States, George W. Bush. Oh, I have an answer. I thought about this one. He would be the dynamical system, the trivial one. X prime equals zero. <laughs> Top that. <laughs> I would say he would be the uh, the simple cubic crystal structure. Because there's, there's not much to it. It's about the simplest thing you could think of. It's very rigid and unyielding. Stubborn. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, Travis, Mason, thank you so much for joining us on this week's Crocotron 5000. Thank you. Sure, thanks. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Crocs. Make sure you tune in next week for more in the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Crocs, you can email us at grocs at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Crocs, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Vikram Pulkan. You can always reach us on the web at www.grocs.net. So stay tuned for more music here at KALX.